If you're 60 years old today, there's a good chance you'll live to 100. Are you prepared? Welcome to Your Longest Life, the podcast all about exploring how we can live our best life as we age. Here's your host, Ian Thompson. And good morning. This is Ian Thompson, the host of Your Longest Life, the podcast about living to 100 and beyond, which brings us to our topic today. Uh, my guest is Marta Zaraska. Good morning, Marta. Hi. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm pretty fine. Yes, awesome. good. Now, you're uh, you're in France today, correct? Yes, that's correct. And I'm currently locked down in my house. I'm not allowed to leave the, the premises without a special permission from the government. So. Oh, boy. Oh, man, that must be hard because you have, you have a young daughter. Yes, luckily the schools are still open. One of the very few reasons I can leave the house is to get her to school and from school. <laughs> okay, okay. And before we get started, you're are you originally from Canada? I mean, I'm originally from Poland. I'm also Canadian. I, I, I'm Canadian. I lived in Canada, but I was born in Poland. I live in France. There are several countries on the way as well. So it's a, it's a long and complicated story. Where did you live in Canada? Calgary. Oh, in Calgary. Okay. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm on Vancouver Island. So you know, it's kind yeah, of funny. Awesome. You're you're in Paris and Vancouver Island, and and here we are. Now, the reason I I reached out to you is because of your new book. It's called Growing Young: How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to a hundred, which of course, just, uh, it's pretty exciting for me, but just to back up a bit, your, your first book was called meat hooked, which is about the obsession with meat. And I found that interesting. And I wanted to ask you about that too. And that was picked by one of the best science picks of 2016. Congratulations. That's a big accomplishment for you. Thank you. Um, So your first book, Meat Hooked, was about obsession with meat. Is there a connection with from that book to the new one? Is that how you? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so I, I, I'm actually quite surprised. I, I, I'm asked this question quite a lot, which is exactly surprising to me, because uh, for me, it was quite natural, um, the progression from one book to the next. And so just to back up a little bit, I'm, um, I'm a science journalist. I write for the Scientific American, the Washington Post, um, the Atlantic, new, new scientists discovery. So, and I do specialize in, uh, in health, nutrition, generally biological sciences. Um, so I've been writing about these topics for many, many years. Uh, over two decades now, and uh, and uh, so meat hooks, as you've mentioned, is about why humans love meat so much. What makes it so special? Why are we so mm-hmm. addicted to it that you know, no matter what kind of information we get about meat, maybe not being always the best for us, we still eat more and more and more, right? <laughs> yeah, so do. that was that was my curiosity, basically. Why? What's so special about meat? So it was about nutrition, right, as well. And maybe not only nutrition, because there's a lot of history, anthropology there as well, but it's a big part of it is nutrition. Uh, so, and I am very much interested in nutrition myself also in my private life. I, you know, I have a daughter. I try to make sure our family is healthy, that, you know, to keep living long and healthy yeah. and exercising as well and so on and so on. Um, so the second book kind of came out naturally from this interest because um, in at work, I was reading tons of research papers on nutrition and health and so on and so on. And I I started coming across research showing that the diet and exercise weren't necessarily the only or even the most important things that mattered for our health and longevity, which, you know, came quite as a shock to me as well, because I was 
privately quite obsessed at some point, you know, especially when my daughter was small, I was all into this kind of miracle foods, you know, organic. And uh, I was sprinkling chia seeds on all her foods and turmeric <laughs> and you know, whatnot, just whatever was possible. And then came this, especially this one meta-analysis of studies, so this golden standard of research, which in which the scientists very conveniently for me put all the numbers together and they showed that For example, whereas diet and exercise can lower your mortality risk by about 20 to 30%, which, you know, is a lot also, but social inclusion, so being connected, um, having a romantic partner, knowing your community, having friends, all this put together, it can lower your mortality risk by 45%. So, you know, here you have 20, 30, here you have 45. So it, of course, doesn't say the diet and exercise are not important. It says that there is a really big, important thing that many of us are completely missing. And it's not just the social connections. There is also kindness, uh, volunteering, optimism, uh, being conscientious, not being neurotic, mindfulness, (laughs) and all these things together, if you put it all together, it's about 65% of mortality risk reduction, which is huge. It's it's bigger than even quitting smoking. If you smoke smoke two packets a day, which is, of course, not to say don't quit smoking. Of course, quit smoking. But just, (laughs) just to put it into perspective it's really really important and whereas things like you know supplements or these miracle diets uh miracle foods organics they actually don't matter almost at all and sometimes some of them can be actually harmful i also write about it in growing young which completely changed my perspective as well i no longer sprinkle kia seeds on on everything Uh, i try to be you know more into exactly social connection kindness and some volunteering and things like that and those are what you call the soft drivers of health. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly all these things put together, the social connections, but also personality and the you know purpose in life, for example, as well. There's another really big thing here. I note that I uh, wanted to ask you during your research, did you come in contact with people that necessarily didn't want to live to 100? Yes, that's another you know, thing that I'm, I'm being asked. And um, Like you perhaps know, people- they're worrying about you know, yeah. being a burden to their kids or being in poor health. and Yes. And it is also a common concern. People say, you know, but I don't want to live to 100. So why should I even read a book that, that you know, says you could, how to live to 100, right? But actually, there's a kind of common misconception. Uh, the, uh, actually, what research shows that when people live longer, the percentage or amount of time they spend sick and infirm and firm is actually lower. So if you look, for example, at supercentenarians, so those people who live to be 110 and more, uh, one in 10 of them will spend only three months of their life sick before dying, which is incredible. You live, you know, 109 years and you're only sick for three months before you die. It's amazing. Actually, in terms of percentage, people who live to the kind of usual average 80 something, um, 81, 82, they will spend about 18% of their time on earth infirm. Whereas for people who live to a hundred, that number is much, much lower. So, you know, of course, everybody, you know, there always can be some exceptions to the rule, you know, somebody who lives to 100 and spends four decades in bed. But this is a, a little bit similar to, you know, my grandma smoked and she never had cancer and she lived to 100. There's always a story. But on average, you know, if you stay in good health, you will live longer and you'll live healthier. It usually goes together. 
I know I, I had an uncle like that who smoked a pipe, a cigar, cigarettes all the time, and he made it all the way to the end. And exactly. But that doesn't, of course, it doesn't mean, you know, smoking doesn't kill. Of course it kills. There are always exceptions, right? And I guess as a society, though, we always want a quick fix, don't we? Like that looking, yeah. looking for that pill or new exercise, whatever that is. I mean, unfortunately, you know, there is a lot of this reductionist approach here, right? So looking for supplements, you know, half of all Canadians are currently popping some kind of supplement. And the problem is that a lot of them at best don't work. Some of them can actually be harmful, especially if you mix a lot of things together. And, you know, these are chemical substances you know, that react together as well, right? So, so yes, we like quick fixes, all, all those exercise gadgets, right? Some mm -hmm. exercise apps, uh, exactly miracle foods, you know, some kind of berry that got discovered in Papua New Guinea and now suddenly everybody has to have it. Uh, and the thing is, you know, another question I'm, I'm often asked is like, why... Why haven't we heard before about those soft drivers of health? Why is nobody really talking about, you know, friendship or kindness or optimism and longevity? And my reply is that it's most likely because it's about money. So when you think about all this, you know, miracle foods, supplements, supplements like over $300 billion market, right? So uh, exercise gadgets, all this stuff somebody's making money on it. If somebody's making money on it, it means they're trying to sell you something. You'll hear about it. There'll be ads, there'll be marketing, there'll be social influencers on the on YouTube selling you the products, right? Whereas right. walk with your friend is for free. You know, being uh, involved in your community is generally for free. Picking up, doing small acts of kindness is for free. The same, looking for purpose in life. You know, nobody's making the money on you trying to find purpose in your life. So, so this is why these things don't sell. And if it doesn't sell, unfortunately, you know, it doesn't really make it to, to our uh, common conscience, right. conscience like, you know, um, knowledge. Uh, I think that gets to my next question about more and more of us are spending more and more time on social media. I mean, I'm guilty as charged, like, like everybody else, I guess. And that's resulting in less face-to-face -face time, which goes exactly against what you're saying, isn't it? I mean, definitely, you know, if your social media presence is cutting uh, into your, you know, real life presence, then it's definitely not good. Of course, now we are in very specific moments in time when right. a lot of us are in lockdown and this, you know, online is the only way we can connect. And then, of course, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, but definitely in normal times, if, if people choose to be online instead of in person, then it's definitely worse. There's already so much research on that, you know, that even you probably heard about it, that even placing your phone on the table when you're having a conversation with someone uh, will result in this conversation being ranked as of lower quality uh, for both people than, you know, if the phone wasn't even present. You don't have to even look at it. Just putting it there and the phone being there already impacts the quality of the relationship. And there is just so much research on, you know, on Facebook friendships and stuff like that, that for most people, uh, they are making things worse. There are some exceptions, for example, people who are disabled, who cannot leave their houses for whatever mm -hmm. reason, then having Facebook friends for them can be good. But for most people, if these are replacing real connections, unfortunately, you know, we are we are still creatures who inhabit our, you know, ape-like bodies, uh, ape bodies, you know, and uh, we evolved in a certain way to be connected. And we have all these social hormones like oxytocin, serotonin, vasopressin, endorphins that get released when we are in physical contact with other people, even looking directly into other people's eyes, uh, hugging, holding hands, touching. Mm -hmm. 
smelling the other person, you know, it, it all causes certain reactions in our bodies and uh, which are directly connected to our health. One of the things you talk about is being in a happy romantic relationship can lower mortality risk by 49%. Wow. At the same time, I mean, in my business, in my world, I see more single people in than ever. Uh, I, perhaps you do too. And how do those things cross? What do those people do that if they're not in a relationship, but they still want to be happy, obviously? I mean, definitely having a happy romantic relationship is really good for you, especially for men, for some reason. Uh, and uh, of course, not, not everything. Excuse me, especially for men more than women? Yes. Is, that, is that what yes. you found? Yes, I mean, not me, but uh, there yep. is decades long, of, decades, uh, long research on showing that surprisingly in marriage, or, you know, it's usually about marriage, uh, is much more beneficial for men than it's for women. Even and not a very good marriage is actually beneficial for men. Uh, and scientists um, think that this may have to do with the fact that women are more of social life organizers. So when men are married, even if they may not be the happiest in the relationship, itself, they still benefit from all the social lives that women tend to bring, because there are always exceptions, but in general, women are more into organizing, you know, meeting with, with friends, connecting with family. Mm -hmm. And this is how men may profit uh, from being even in not a very good relationship. Whereas for women, they only profit from marriage when it's really of high quality. So like poor marriage will not benefit women's health, um, but for men it may. So uh, that's kind of a little bit of a uh, curiosity in research yeah. uh, that emerges. Mm -hmm. So I guess even if you're not in a relationship, you can still obviously be connected with people. And, and maybe that's the extension of that. If you're if you're choosing to be single, many people are. That's great, but you still have to get out in the world and be connected somehow. I mean, the best is to have both. So definitely, right. you know, the romantic relationship brings you this kind of extremely close connection and the feeling of safety. So, you know, when you look at romantic couples, people uh, synchronize they, their bodies on a very physiological level. For example, even uh, electric conductivity in the chest or finger temperature, uh, blood pressure, pulse, they synchronize those things in couples. So it's absolutely amazing how living with another person, being in a very close relationship really affects your body. Of course, you know, if you don't have it, you can still try to replace it with very close friendships, for example, right? If you, if you have roommates and one of them, for example, or two are extremely close, you're really, it could potentially perhaps replace something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, but definitely the best scenario is if you have the romantic partner and you have very close friendships and you know, your neighbors, which, you know, Many people don't, 25% of Americans don't even know a single name of their neighbor, uh, so it is you know, astounding. And uh, so if you, you, you kind of have all those layers, then that's the best, right? It is astounding. It's interesting. We were talking about that, my wife and I at home, about trying to make our front yard more of a place we sit as opposed to the backyard. We sit in the backyard all the time because it's quiet and no one sees us. Yeah. But we were talking about being in the front because people walk by. You don't even know who they are. So to your point, absolutely, I understand. I, I like the the comment you had about volunteering, 38% fewer nights in the hospital. I mean, I'm a Rotarian. I've got my rotary hat on tonight, so I like volunteering. But did that surprise you that volunteers are 
I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but as I mentioned, you know, I've been writing about those things for quite a while. So it, it makes sense, you know, it's, uh, it makes biological sense, first of all. So uh, we have something that scientists called a caregiving system. It's something that we evolved to be able to properly care for our unusually helpless infants, because, you know, human infants are usually, unusually for mammals, uh, helpless. And um, to be able to properly care for them, we've evolved several systems in our bodies. So it starts in our brain with, um, with parts like the reward system, for example, or the amygdala, and then with all the downstream connections to our fight or flight response. And what happens when you are caring for others is that your stress response really calms down. So the response of the amygdala, the fear center in your brain really goes down. So it calms you down. And the reason for that is that to be able to properly care for someone else, you cannot be panicking. You cannot be freaking out, right? And you have to be calm down yourself first. It's like putting the mask first on an airplane, right? First on yourself, and then you can help. So this basically happens in your body. It puts the mask first on you. And uh, so when we are caring for others, whether it's formal volunteering or just everyday kindness, you know, making tea for your friends or picking litter in, on, on, in, in your neighborhood or letting someone ahead of you in traffic, these things activate this caregiving system and calm us down. And as we know, you know, stress, especially chronic stress, mm -hmm. has so many downstream consequences for our health, you know, from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so on and so on. Mm. Is society ready for more and more people to live to 100? And I'm, and I'm thinking about the implications are enormous housing. Clearly, that's what I do. And the related costs, a lot of pressure around the world. How is all this going to work if all of us do what you say and live longer is that i mean if we all i you know it sounds like a good, good question but uh but you know as i've mentioned before if we live longer and we stay healthier then the pressures on the healthcare system will be much lower so the spending will be much lower right i've mentioned before those super centenarians who spend only three months being sick right if we all could be like that you know it's very theoretical but imagine right the lowered costs for the healthcare system, right? Uh, it's actually been calculated in, calculated in several places how much loneliness costs the healthcare system or how much uh, things like neuroticism costs the healthcare system. And these numbers are enormous. And for this reason, there are billions and billions of dollars. So the reasons for that, that the reason for that, for this reason, sorry, uh, the British actually now have a minister for loneliness exactly because they recognize that loneliness is a health issue. So to lower their healthcare spending, they are trying to fight loneliness. Uh, the same, for example, in Japan, they recognize purpose in life as a health uh, issue, uh, public health issue. So in Netherlands, they calculated the costs of neuroticism to the healthcare system. So, uh, so we know that uh, the, if we all lived, as I you know, the, following the research I described in Growing Young, we would be healthier, the healthcare spending would be lower. So there will be a lot of money saved there and people will be also more productive. You know, if we all were kind and volunteering and socially engaged, uh, imagine the benefits of the society. There's a lot of, uh, I, I guess for, you know, in Canada, it seems like our society is based on at certain stages of your life, you live here and then you go over there and then you go over there where in other you've traveled the world much more than I have. It's much more togetherness, living together, different generations. Yes, that, would be I mean, a big, that would be a big shift for Canadians. I mean, I definitely love the way, you know, I live in a very small village here in France and I absolutely love exactly this kind of intergenerational thing. So for example, we very often, not these days, but in normal times, we hang a lot with our neighbors. We meet just, you know, 
everybody. We have this, you know, big table in the garden and everybody hangs out together and we'll be sitting at the same table, you know, uh, anybody from my eight-year-old daughter to our neighbor's teenage sons and our 92-year-old neighbor. And, you know, one one time we had a, we had a chat like this at a table and the 92-year-old lady had a very passionate conversation with the 15-year-old son of our neighbors <laughs> about computer games, you know, and it's amazing. I just love it how, you know, how, Everybody's included. It's normal. The French expects both teenagers and small children and the elderly to be at the same table and having conversations together. Uh, there is no children's table. You know, everybody's together. So I really love that how they really include everybody um, at the same table. And I guess even the living choices where, where mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and, and the other families are together and uh, each contributing to the household instead of, again, I come back to the Canadian way where it's time, you're 75, you go live over there now, that, which is how it, it, it works here, mm. which, you I know, mean, listening to what you're saying is an interesting Yeah, I mean, that's, that. that's definitely a difference different approach right and so and so this is also what i write in growing young that you know we often look at this so-called mediterranean diet as this kind of golden standard of healthy eating right and we look how much olive oil they they eat how much how many what kind of vegetables they eat what kind of wine they drink and but I, we really miss a really big part of what makes mediterranean diet healthy and this is how they eat it's not just what they eat it's how they eat and they eat with other people at a table slowly taking their time being really you know uh, in a communal way and this is really really important here and um and something that is often missed you know oh, when yeah. we are looking exactly at italian spanish and french uh, and, and their eating style right it's really important that the how to eat that is if you eat it alone in your car it won't have the same health benefits you reference uh, conscientiousness being responsible, hardworking is an important driver. Is that, yes. what did you find yeah. in that? I mean, one researcher I talked to, he actually said that if conscientiousness could be put into a pill, it will be the most powerful drug on the planet. <laughs> wow, what a great thing. Yeah, because, you know, when you think about it, so on one hand, conscientiousness goes together with, um, with, being generally into health behavior. So people who are conscientious, they also eat healthy, they exercise, they, you know, they do their health checks on time, they listen to their doctors and so on and so on. But that's not everything because even when scientists control for all this kind of health behaviors, there still remains a great chunk of direct effects of conscientiousness on, on health, just like optimism affects health directly or neuroticism affects health directly. So does conscientiousness. Uh, and the good thing here is, you know, when sometimes I have interviews and people say, say oh my God, but I'm so messy. Why I'm, am I doomed, right? Am I definitely going to be unhealthy and die, die young? But the thing is that, you know, although there is some genetic part to how conscientious you are, just like there is to how optimistic you are or how, how extroverted and so on and so on, the same you know, the same is with conscientiousness, but uh, there is also a large portion of that we can change. So there is more and more research showing that personality actually can be changed just by practicing, basically. So it's very similar to your muscles. Every, all of us are born with different types of muscles and not all of us are born with the same potential. For example, I don't have the same potential as Usain Bolt and I still try running, right? So <laughs> right. I try to become better and, and practice and so on and so on. So, um, so the same with conscientiousness or optimism as well. Uh, you can still improve a lot in the same way that you do with exercise, just 
trying slowly doing more and more. So with consciousness, there are some great interventions described in research where basically people just do small consciousness tasks each day. For example, today I'll just clean my desk and that's it, right? Next day I'll pay one bill, you know, things <laughs> like that. And over time, you become more conscientiousness, conscientious. The same with optimism, just, you know, try to change your thought pattern, starting just one a day or something like that, or, or write some journal. And this kind of exercises really do change people's personality. That's so important, even in, um, I mean, we're talking about your life, but your, your work life, you know, the more I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, gee, these things can really impact your work life, your day-to-day, -day, how I relating with people, friendship, optimism, and kindness. I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a tough business where it's, you know, we're all self-employed and we're all, you know, doing what we can to, to work and achieve more sales, et cetera. But being friendly and optimistic and kind can still be part of that. Of I mean, that. first of all, yeah. you know, if we are talking all the time about health and longevity here, but the nice side effect of this is that your life also becomes more pleasant, right? This is something that no yeah. amount of broccoli can give you unless you really love broccoli. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. You have, you have a win for your health, you have a win for your happiness, yeah. and you have a win for the society because if everybody was kind and volunteering and friendly yeah. and involved in communities, we would all benefit, right? So when I was writing this book and reading all this research, I found it extremely gratifying, you know, that growing as a person, this is where the title comes from, growing as a person can actually help us stay healthy and live long. So, um, mm -hmm. so I really found it kind of very optimistic. Oh, that's awesome. There was a quote here I thought was terrific. It says, history reaches us, teaches us, sorry, that in difficult times, people often find more meaning and purpose and even happiness. Now, can, do you have some examples of that that you could pull yeah. on that thread a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, for example, there is some fascinating research on the French people, for example, that during the Second World War, the French were much happier than they have ever been since. And the British also were happier in the 40s, 1940s, than they were, for example, in 1980s, which, you know, when you think about it, how come they were happier yeah. during, the, during the Second World War than afterwards? And uh, there is, you know, there, there is research showing exactly that when people go through difficult times, they they actually can, you know, we concentrate on things that matter the most. Even today, you know, during the pandemic, we see so many acts of kindness and people also connecting, you know, the donations are up everywhere across the planet when you look at it. Um, you know, people are actually connecting more with their neighbors where they, they never met them before and suddenly right. they are connecting in, in, uh, during this whole pandemic. So, so in tough times, we often exactly look for we stop chasing the small things you know the new gadgets or money and things yeah. that are unimportant and really concentrate on those things that matter excellent so just as we wrap up i know you're busy thank you for taking some time with me if you know someone's got your book and they've decided to live what steps can they take what do you think are the you know the top three things okay i, I listened to this today i'm ready to go what number what do you think I mean, so definitely the first step is to just change your perspective and realize that those things really matter for our health. And it's just not that it is actually about health. So for me, for example, uh, as I've mentioned before, I, I run for exercise. And uh, at the beginning of this year, I was planning to run a health marathon. And um, then I realized that if I did that, I would have to prepare so much. It would take so much of my time. Then I would have much less time to spend just 
sitting on the couch of my husband's, you know, and chatting. And uh, so I decided not to run a half marathon. I still ran four times a week, but shorter. And, yeah. um, and, uh, but before writing Growing Young, I would have felt guilty sitting on the couch of my husband thinking, oh, I could have been running, you know, I should have, you know, I'm sacrificing my health here. It's nice, but yeah, you know, I'm couch potato kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, but now I see this, you know, this, this chatting, the connecting part as perhaps more important, most likely more important than the extra runs I would have done. So just switching the perspective and seeing, you know, those things as actually also important for your health, that you are not sacrificing anything, that you are doing it for yourself as well. Uh, I think this is the first step. And then, you know, just putting time, as much time as we spend reading about some new diets or shopping for supplements or um, or looking for new exercise gadgets and downloading all those apps on our phone that measure everything. Yeah. You know, if we put all this time into scheduling time to spend with people, so, you know, put into your calendar, you know, at least once a week, meet with your friends, right? Call your family, you know, things like that. Just put them really as a top priority also because of your health. So I think this, are, this is really important. And the, the third thing would be just also spend time on looking at exactly your life in general. So find purpose, you know, check if you can be more optimistic. So just this kind of personal development, but it's all about putting it into your health agenda, uh, just as we do exactly, about, you know, measuring our 10,000 steps. This is at least as important, if not more important. Oh, what a great way to finish. Thank you. Your new book, Marta, is called Growing Young, How Friendship, Optimism, and Kindness Can Help You Live to 100. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ian, for having me. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Your Longest Life with Ian Thompson. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and share it with others. For more info, articles, and to get in touch with Ian, visit yourlongestlife.com.